Welcome to HSBC Global Viewpoint, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Welcome, everyone, to this HSBC Global Research Live event. I'm Piers Butler, Head of Global Research Direct. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest for today's session, Dr. Murat Ulgan, Global Head of Emerging Markets Research. Murat, welcome. Murat has been uh, a guest on the live uh, uh, previously, uh, and I think we've got a lot to talk about, as we said in our teaser on LinkedIn, on emerging markets. But uh, two or three uh, quick admin notes before we get going. Firstly, as a reminder, uh, this session is to give you the opportunity to ask Murat your questions. So please input in the dialog box on your screen and they'll be relayed to me and I'll be able to put them to Murat. We have less than 30 minutes, so don't hang about. Secondly, follow us on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, it's hashtag HSPC research or follow Murat who uh, posts regularly. Uh, and also, if at any point you have a question about HSPC Global Research, there's a great email address that you should use. It's askresearch at hsbc.com. Uh, and after the, the live, don't hesitate to use it if you have questions on HSBC research. And then finally, and importantly, this year's HSBC Global Emerging Markets Forum is about to take place. This is our annual forum uh, where we cover all aspects of emerging markets. It's going to be online for three weeks from the 13th of September. And it will have over 150 companies presenting and 45 macro, thematic, and sector panels. It's open to clients. Contact your HSBC representative if you want to attend any or all of the sessions. All right, let's get the show on the road. Murat, whilst we wait for the questions to come through, uh, let me ask you a, a, a couple. Um, obviously, since the last time that we did a live with you in April, quite a lot has happened. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular, let's start right at the top with the Fed raising rates in response to inflationary pressures. It's obviously not great for US markets, but traditionally the impact has tended to be amplified uh, in emerging markets. In a way you could put it, uh, how would I put it, if the Fed uh, sneezes, emerging markets catch a cold. Is that the case this time around? Thank you, Piers. Well, I mean, as you said, since April, a lot has happened. And I think it's fair to say that the headwinds facing emerging markets are getting stronger we have global central banks getting more hawkish in the face of persistent high inflation, in certain cases even higher inflation. We got an important meeting today by the European Central Bank. You know, let's see what happens. Um, and the Fed has you know, uh, come up with pretty substantial rate hikes, you know, the magnitude we haven't seen in decades. So there is an element of global cost of funding rising, and it is a major headwind for emerging markets, especially those who are in deficit and require fiscal and current account financing. But I think there is also an area which I think is a little bit overlooked or maybe not enough discussion around it. I mean, we understandably focus a lot on the Fed rate hikes, you know, ECB, global center banks. But in the background, there is also a balance sheet reduction, quantitative tightening, which started in earnest by the, by the U.S. Fed in June. They've started slow and they will size it up. So essentially, they're reducing the balance sheet, which has increased and expanded over the years. Uh, there have been uh, a few ways since global financial crisis. And the latest we saw 
post-pandemic, pretty significant balance sheet expansion. You know, we went through the taper and now the balance sheet is in an outright reduction mode. Um, as I said, the Fed started relatively small and they're not outright selling assets. They just let the maturing assets run off of the balance sheet by about nearly $50 billion per month. But this is going to go up according to the plans if nothing changes towards the end of the year to around $100 billion, which is $1.2 trillion per year. That is a pretty substantial amount. So what it means in practice is we proxy global liquidity by summing up the balance sheets of large global central banks, starting with the Fed, the ECB, Bank of Japan, Bank of England. As of June, the annual change in the size of balance sheet of these large global central banks went into the negative territory. So the year-on-year growth rate is now negative, which means in plain English terms, global liquidity is falling. It's being withdrawn from the financial system. And we've established pretty substantial strong correlations in the past there's a lagged impact between changes in global liquidity in annual terms and financial flows to emerging markets, bonds and equities, which in turn determine and dictate financial conditions. So, yes, you know, uh, coming back to your original question, unfortunately, this impacts emerging markets. I call it twin tightening by the Fed, not only higher rates, but also smaller balance sheet and lower global liquidity, which is impacting flows. As a matter of fact, we've seen pretty significant outflows, especially from the fixed income uh, uh, funds uh, covering emerging markets year to date. So let's talk about sentiment. Uh, uh, We are waiting for the next edition, the ninth uh, edition of your emerging market sentiment survey. But already the last one that we saw in July recorded some pretty negative readings in terms of sentiment, risk aversion, very high cash balances. Do you sense from your discussions with clients and, and what you're seeing out there that it has continued to get worse? And, and how, how worse can it get, given that it was already in pretty negative readings? I mean, you're absolutely right. Just to cite a few numbers from the previous Emerging Market Sentiment Survey, you know, we, we asked lots of questions, but the first and foremost question we asked to institutional investors is, what is your view about emerging markets? What's the outlook over the next three months? And those who say they were bullish sank to the lowest since the start of the survey, only 15%. It's quite striking. We take the net of the bullish and bearish. That is also the lowest. We ask investors their appetite to take EM risk from 0 to 10, 0, no risk, and 10, fully EM risk. It sank to its lowest level since the inception of the survey, only 5.2 and weight the average basis. And more striking, the cash levels are huge. I mean, the levels I've never seen in my own humble career but actually, in the previous survey, one third of the investors had more than 10% cash of, uh, as a ratio of assets under management in their portfolios. So already very depressed sentiment peers. You're absolutely right. And you know, clearly, you know, since the previous survey, things haven't improved much, as we discussed at the beginning. But you know, ironically, I might also argue you know, this might be good for emerging markets in the sense that it's already very depressed sentiment. Positioning is already very low. And you might argue, you know, in certain cases, the return profiles have improved across the asset classes. And more importantly, there is so much cash that could be put into work if conditions stabilize, if the outlook improves. So you can look at it both ways. And I would say this is probably a better part of the emerging market story. We discuss about the headwinds with regards to global financial conditions. But I think the better story is 
it's already really depressed sentiment and very, very high cash that institutional investors who invest in EM, they spare at the moment and they can put them, put them at work. So that really begs the question, Murat, of what could be the catalyst for all that cash coming back into the, uh, into the system? I, I think I think that's the million dollar question. I mean, of all my career, I always thought emerging markets having a stable macro background uh, with, you know, uh, with, with, with growth, preferably, of course, and better growth than DM, but at the same time, relatively small imbalances, you know, contained inflation, financing needs lower. When you have that stable macro background, uh, investors get really interested. Um, and I think there are certain parts of the emerging market universe. You can see that. I mean, yes, clearly it is a very challenging environment. But um, I mean, if you look at GCC, for instance, it's not only high oil prices, but also, you know, real policy change, uh, counter-cyclical policies, fiscal reform, the competition in the region to attract business and capital. I think that part of the world is where we are still pretty constructive. I mean, the likes of UAE, Saudi, um, and, and other parts of GCC, we are quite constructive. Uh, and then there is Latin America, which, you know, uh, obviously has seen huge inflationary pressures early on, uh, but they did tighten monetary policy a lot earlier as well. I mean, they started hiking rates one year earlier than the Fed. Um, and some countries, particularly Brazil, you might argue is maybe a little bit ahead of the curve. I mean, we do expect monetary tightening cycle to finish pretty soon. And this is one of the rare parts of emerging markets where actually inflation momentum has turned around and already falling and you have pretty significant real risk premium. So I think certain parts of emerging markets are showing signs of stabilization, improving macro background. And yes, you know, we are hearing uh, investors are interested in such stories, especially with so much cash on the sidelines. So just a reminder for everyone to uh, put uh, your questions to Murat in the uh, dialog box that you have on your screen. Just uh, uh, sling them in there and uh, they'll, they'll come through to me and I'll, I'll put them to Murat. We have a couple already. Um, uh, can you, Murat, can you elaborate on Fed QT, how uh, it should impact emerging markets? Yes, definitely. Um, I think that's important. Again, you know, to me, the debate surrounding interest rates is clearly very, very important and crucial for EM misses the point that global liquidity is equally important. So what we do um, in our studies, we look at the total size of the balance sheet of large global central banks in dollar terms. We sum them up and we track them over the years or decades, actually. But more importantly, we believe it's the rate of change that matters a lot more. It's the annual change or the first derivative of global liquidity, not the level, but the rate of change. Because the rate of change, the annual pace, correlates very, very well with financial flows, inflows and outflows for emerging markets, bonds and equities combined. There are some lags. It may take up to a year between changes in global liquidity having an impact on financial flows. And, you know, just to cite you a few numbers, uh, year to date, we have actually seen uh, nearly $57 billion of outflows from EM fixed income. Um, and against that, there has been actually, uh, there have been inflows into equities, but net net, we actually have outflows from emerging market funds. And we think this correlates or, or, or this stems from the fact that global liquidity is not falling, the annual change is declining. Then we take it one step further, 
we look at these financial flows, how they impact domestic credit conditions across various emerging markets, like 15 of them, large emerging markets, and we aggregate them into financial conditions. As of the second quarter of this year, um, and obviously, you know, the third quarter is yet to be finished. It's a quarterly series. As of the second quarter, financial conditions for emerging markets have tightened pretty significantly because of higher domestic rates, because of wider borrowing spreads, because of weaker equity markets. But more importantly, the reason I mentioned because of slower credit growth or falling credit growth that is impacted by financial flow. So this is sort of the, 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 the chain of the analysis how we drill it down this you know global liquidity or quantitative tightening or quantitative easing vice versa to financial conditions for em and we have also established a study uh, we, we've done a few years ago that actually the financial conditions eventually dictate the growth output for emerging markets and coming back to my original point you know what could be the catalyst peers you said growth is important unfortunately with that tightening of financial conditions um, the risk for growth still is to the downside, at least in the near term. Okay, a few more questions uh, coming through. Uh, there has been a lot of talk of decoupling in the past, but it hasn't really happened. Can you elaborate on that? And I'd like to tack on to that uh, an earlier point that we were chatting about before the call, which is that actually there is a danger when you talk about emerging markets of oversimplifying the topic because there are actually some quite strong regional differences, in particular recently with the rise of commodity prices. Correct. Um, you might argue there are a few areas of decoupling. I don't think there is a decoupling when it comes to financial conditions, as mentioned, you know, uh, pretty much all emerging markets to varying degrees, but at least in terms of direction, are impacted by higher global cost of funding and lower global liquidity. But then um, you might argue there is a bit of a decoupling or divergence is maybe a better word um, when it comes to the inflation outlook, when it comes to monetary policy, and when it comes to the external balances, which are impacted by commodity prices, you said, Piers. I mean, obviously, higher commodity prices or lower commodity prices, they create winners and losers um, with regards to you know emerging markets who are um, exporting and producing commodities versus those who are consuming and importing commodities. But to me, the real divergence is happening more on the inflation side in the sense that Asia is a bit of a laggard because last year, Asia grew more with external demand and exports and the economies were broadly closed because of the pandemic, or at least to, you know, there were certain mobility restrictions. But this year, they're opening up um, in many parts of Asia. I actually traveled to Singapore a couple of weeks ago and I've observed with my very own eyes, lots of parts in Asia are now opening up and, and, and you know, they are eliminating restrictions or they're reducing restrictions, uh, lessening restrictions, which actually means that domestic demand is coming back. And there's a pickup in inflation, not as bad as EMEA and LATAM previously, but there clearly is a pickup. And Asian central banks have embarked on a, on a tightening rate hike uh, uh, series, um, excluding China, of course. Whereas uh, when you look at Latin America, as mentioned earlier, this is the part of emerging markets where actually inflationary impact was a lot earlier, more forceful, and the central banks started to tighten a lot earlier than the others compared to the Fed as well. And they're about to actually arrest inflationary pressures. In certain cases, we're already there, like in Brazil, we already mentioned. But, you know, th these center banks have seen, um, uh, you know, and relatively earlier in a more aggressive cycle, and inflation is about to turn and lose momentum. So I think 
this is the big divergence, at least when I look at emerging markets universe. You know, you got one part, which is Asia, where inflation is rising only with a lag and delay, and the central banks are now tightening. Whereas Latin America, this has happened earlier. And actually, the PPI, producing inflation, has fallen a lot in Latin America, and central banks are about to finish uh, their tightening cycle, um, as the markets expect. Next question is um, on uh, supply chain uh, disruptions. And I know you work closely with our trade economist, Shanela Rajanayagam. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on the impact of supply chain uh, disruptions and the broader topic of are we really witnessing deglobalization? Hmm. On supply chains, there are good news. Um, I can say that over the past few months, the pressure or the stress on supply chains uh, have started to ease a lot. You may have seen since the beginning of this year, um, the US Fed has started to disclose what they call global supply chain pressure or stress index. That's for the whole global economy. And, you know, we've looked at it for individual regions, Asia, EMEA, and Latin America. There was a genuine decline late last year since September up until February, especially in Asia, which really encouraged us in the beginning of the year. But then, unfortunately, this was interrupted by the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and the supply chain pressure has intensified, um, at least through the spring months and into the summer months. But late summer, we are seeing some easing of that pressure. I mean, obviously, one important gauge is the Baltic Dry Index, which is a which is a daily series that we follow, has fallen a lot very recently. So in that sense, there are good news, uh, that supply chain pressure is improving, which, which with a lag should impact producer inflation, cost side inflation, and that itself with a lag should actually reduce consumer inflation. So there are definitely good news there. Now, the topic of deglobalization, or you know, perhaps maybe I should say reversal of gains from earlier globalization, I think it's a serious topic. And I think uh, this is something that is unfortunately leaving some unwanted cost layers on inflation. And this is a long-running issue. And actually, this hasn't started with the pandemic or the war. We already had some trade frictions even early on, you know, import tariffs, uh, you know, which has been causing some, uh, you know, changes and rejiggings in global supply chains, regionalization or reshoring. Then we had several waves of disruption due to COVID, which came in waves, uh, you know, different variants caused you know, restrictions on mobility, uh, on, you know, shipments, you know, ships leaving the ports, you know, trucks driving or trains, etc. Obviously, there, were, you know, there was a series over the last three years, a series of disruption on global supply chains. And obviously, then there was unfortunately this war, which is impacting supply chains even further. So I think you can make a case that over the past five, six years, we've seen a lot of reversal of previous integration and improvement in global supply chains. And that's important because um, in our work, in our analysis, we've looked at emerging markets inflation versus trade openness. As emerging markets become more open to global trade, exports, imports as a ratio of GDP rising. As emerging markets take a bigger part from global trade and global trade itself is a bigger part or a multiple of global GDP there is a fall in inflation, which is very intuitive. Lowest cost producer, ship things around quickly, flexibly, reduces cost and inflation everywhere. 
I think what we are seeing, peers, over the past few years is a bit of a reversal of that. And that is why inflation picture is so challenging. A couple of questions on uh, currency. Um, US uh, dollar uh, shows roughly a 10 to 20% gain against emerging market effects. Uh, where are you going there? And then also, how is the currency risk of emerging markets uh, in the background of Fed rate hike and tightened liquidity? Yes, so um, I think it's, it's quite well known and publicized as a house. Uh, we're still on the strong dollar camp. We have been, our FX strategists have been arguing this for more than a year, and they still argue US dollar should stay in the front foot, should remain strong, globally speaking. Um, you know, we, we, we can make an argument that US economy will slow um, in the coming term, uh, but then when you look at the rest of the world, the challenges are even bigger. So in that regard, U.S. Fed has probably have a more open and clearer pathway to tighten monetary policy in terms of balance sheet reduction and in terms of rate hikes compared to other large big economies, which should keep dollar, uh, you know, stronger than the others. So that is our directional call. It clearly is not great news for emerging markets when you're in a strong dollar environment, although you know, you might argue the impact really varies. I mean, you refer to, or in the question, Fed's tightening and strong dollar, how this would impact emerging markets. Uh, I think, you know, generally speaking, it's not great news. But then you, you have to look at individual regions and countries where the financing requirements are large or not. I mean, depending on the macro stability and the financing needs of current account deficits or fiscal deficits, Tightening of global liquidity and higher rates, they may have varying impacts. I think generally I, I should say that the bias is towards a stronger dollar, but it's not like every emerging market currency should be impacted to the same degree. I mean, I'll give you an example. South Africa, for instance, um, we had current account surplus in 2020. We had a current account surplus in 2021. This year we're looking for a current account surplus. And next year we're looking for a current account surplus, maybe a smaller current account surplus, but still. Four consecutive years of current account surplus, we probably saw last time in South Africa like 50 years ago. So it's a big change. And clearly, there is a strong support from commodity price gains previously. Um, and that reduces South Africa's external financing requirements. I mean, it doesn't mean that South African rent won't be impacted from strong dollar. But clearly, it's a better position compared to the previous current account deficits. So I think one has to make a distinction uh, across countries where there are financing needs and there better macro stability or not. But stronger dollar generally is, unfortunately, another headwind for emerging markets, uh, adding up to, the, to this whole list of headwinds that we discussed in the beginning. Um, uh, so we're sort of, uh, my God, the time flies. Five minutes left. So you're going to have to make these one reasonably quick and it's going to be a challenge because there are questions on specific countries. There's a question on Vietnam. Egypt and India. So some quick thoughts on each of those. Oh, okay. Um, I think, you know, we, Vietnam is probably one of the beneficiaries of rejigging and shifting of global supply chains. And, and, you know, it clearly is an economy with better macro balances, significant amount of FDI inflows. So obviously, you know, uh, lots of potential to improve. It's quite interesting you brought that up, Pierce, because we have done a broad study for emerging markets looking at the gains of total factor productivity over the previous decades. And total factor productivity is this sort of the efficiency component. It's 
you know, it's what the economy generates beyond of what you input into the economy, beyond labor and capital. These are your efficiency gains, right? You know, strong capital inflows, you know, rules, regulations, improving business environment, etc. When we looked at emerging markets over several decades, after the global financial crisis, until the pandemic, total factor productivity fell pretty much everywhere. The only country where it actually went up was Vietnam. And then the other country where actually it didn't fall, it didn't rise, but it didn't fall was India. And that was your other question. Where actually over the medium to long term, we we're very constructive. I mean, you have demographics, you have, you know, substantial reform, um, uh, you know, introduced earlier to make India, you know, a lot more efficient in terms of, you know, goods and services tax and banking sector reform, you know, uh, uh, changing uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, monetary uh, parameters and components. Uh, and, and now, you know, there are more and more signs that inflation is coming under control. I think India definitely remains uh, one of our sort of, you know, favorite choices over the medium to long term. Now, Egypt, um, you know, clearly the most important, um, um, you know, news or the announcement that everybody's expecting in the near term is a potential IMF program uh, that the authorities are still in discussion with. Um, I think, you know, once we have an IMF program or once we know the parameters of Egypt, we can probably have a better outlook into the future. There has been some pressure, some volatility in the markets, you know, uh, there has been a devaluation of the currency and rate hikes. There is still a current account deficit. Budget deficit has come down a lot, uh, but there is still some financing. Needs. And needless to say, Egypt has been impacted by higher food prices, which have been coming in lower over the past three, four months. You know, I think going forward, once we have news about the IMF program, we know the details, and obviously there's very strong support from the Gulf partners uh, for Egypt, I think we may have a better idea and better outlook and things may become a lot more stable going forward. Now, maybe to finish on, because we have really been talking about fairly short-term cyclical factors associated with emerging markets, but two of your colleagues have written recently Fred Newman on Asia Wealth and James Pomeroy on the next generation of spenders. And isn't there a very bullish secular trend regarding the rise of Asian wealth, the rise of uh, um, middle class, both in Asia and other emerging markets? And is that something that you should be betting on? No, absolutely. I, look, you know, uh, both you and I, we've seen ups and downs in emerging markets that are cycles. But if you try to look through the cycle, over the medium to long term, there are secular dynamics which actually should, um, you know, uh, make emerging markets perform much better. I mean, one of them you mentioned, the catch up potential on spending based on increasing income and wealth. And that ties in with demographics, which is still strong in various parts of emerging markets. I can add one more. It's urbanization. Um, you know, uh, colleagues, you, the colleagues you mentioned, like James in particular, he has written a lot about this that in, you know, developed markets, maybe around three quarters of people live in urban cities, but in emerging markets, only like 50% or something. And with urbanization comes significant job potential and also infrastructure investments. So there is a massive catch-up potential there. And emerging markets can still drive long-term growth. And maybe just to give you one striking statistic just before we close, emerging markets at the, at the moment make up more than 60% of world GDP and they contribute probably more to world GDP. Maybe not 
very recently, but you know, if you take an average over the last 10 years or so, but they're only 20% of equity market capitalization and only 10% of global world bond indices. So there is a massive room for a catch up. Murat, we've run out of time. Uh, as ever, it's been a real pleasure to have you on this live. Uh, always a fascinating topic, inexhaustible really, and difficult to cover in half an hour, but I hope we've given an update to our listeners about your, your thoughts. Do remember to follow Murat uh, on LinkedIn because he posts uh, regularly. And uh, as a reminder, our next live, actually we'll continue the discussion on this point about rising wealth and spending. It'll be on the 19th of October with uh, James Pomeroy on uh, demographics. James Pomeroy, our global economist. So with that, thank you all for joining. Don't forget, ask research at hsbc.com if you didn't get a chance to answer questions or you have any other questions about HSBC Global Research. Many thanks. Thank, thank you, Piers. Um, really appreciate it. And maybe one final reminder, obviously you mentioned in the beginning that we have our Global Emerging Markets Forum starting next week on 13th of September until the end of the month, 40 plus virtual panels. So we'd really look forward to seeing you there. If you want to join to any or all of the sessions, speak to your HSBC representative. We also have a physical in-person session for those who are in London, which is next week on Thursday on the 15th in the afternoon. So please do speak with your HSBC representative and we look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Global Viewpoint. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes.